We are considering the book of Exodus in this season of our life together on Sunday mornings because it's a story of salvation and deliverance, and we believe that God's Old Testament people's story through the Exodus is our story. In many ways, at least analogously, we are on an Exodus as well, longing for deliverance, longing for God to be present, and longing for God to be at work to lead us to the promised land, to a new heavens and a new earth. So their story is our story, and it's our prayer that we would find truth in the midst of God's work among his people in the Old Testament. If you will, stand with me as we consider Exodus chapter 3 this morning. One of, if not arguably, the most significant texts in the entire Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us and show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Years ago, I became pretty fascinated with a particular sea creature. This was largely due to the fact that my kids were really obsessed with learning about sea creatures. It seems to be just kind of a thing when kids are young. They tend to educate their parents on things they either knew and forgot or really never knew but probably should have known. And so this was true for me with regard to learning about sea creatures and animals. And so I could not help but to be fascinated through their fascination. And so while we learned about many different things um, that lived in the sea, uh, I became particularly interested in one. It happened to be the largest fish that swims in the seas. I wonder if you know what the largest fish, and this is important because this is not a mammal, uh, that swims in the seas. The largest fish is the whale shark. A little confusing by its name because it's not a whale, it's a shark means it's a fish. It's not a mammal. And so whale sharks are fascinating. They're huge, like over 60 feet long, weighing some 15 plus tons, and they're harmless. And they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Some of you maybe have even seen them in the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta. The ones they have there are not as big as they can get, but they're still enormous And they're beautiful. They have beautiful skin and spots. And they move through the water with great grace and beauty. Well, in 2009, uh, on a beloved beach where I had spent really a lot of time throughout my childhood and then into high school and college on the Gulf Coast of Florida, Grayton Beach. Some of you would be familiar with Grayton Beach. It's right there along 30A. There's a very infamous restaurant that's become a little too well known, in my opinion. But uh, the Red Bar is at Grayton Beach. There's a beautiful state park there. Grayton Beach has been rated one of the most beautiful beaches in the world, natural sand dunes, etc. And so one day in August of 2009, people just like you and I uh, were minding their own business at Grayton Beach, maybe having a burger at the Red Bar. And then they started to hear murmurs of people like snorkeling in a normal place just off the coast of Grayton Beach in the Gulf, having spotted whale sharks. No one had ever seen or known of whale sharks swimming in this area before, and so just innocent bystanders and beachgoers now all of a sudden are captivated as they stood on the beach knowing that the largest fish that God ever created, or at least that we know about, is swimming just a few hundred yards from the beach, and so people started to swarm out there to experience and to have this encounter themselves with these beautiful creatures. And the videos really are amazing just to watch normal people, not in scuba gear. Mind you, people travel all over the world uh, to be able to swim with whale sharks. Also, remember what I said earlier they're not dangerous, like they don't have teeth, they eat plants. And so, you, literally, you can swim with them and buy them. And you watch people in this video with snorkels and masks getting out of these fishing boats or just finding some other way to get out there. And apparently there were five of them and they were there for over two days. And people had what one of my friends would call literally an immersive experience with a glorious creature as they swam in the water with these whale sharks. Well, it's pretty transformative for me just to know about that, especially to have the familiarity of a non-distinct beach where I'd spend a lot of time to think about these beautiful creatures being in the water just off the coast. But what about the people that actually got to swim with them? The truth is, through that experience and through that encounter, chances are those people would never be the same. They will never forget what it was like 
in August of 2009 to swim with the whale sharks off the coast of Grayton Beach. Well, today's text on a much deeper and more profound level also tells a story about an encounter, about an immersive experience that transforms an individual forever. The main thing I want us to see this morning from Exodus chapter 3 is that when we encounter God, we are transformed. When we encounter God, we are transformed. We see the transformation of this man that the Scriptures call Moses this morning. And some of you would remember and know that Moses himself actually wrote Exodus. And so it's pretty remarkable to think that you've got Moses given an autobiographical account of an immersive experience through this encounter that he had with the living God through an unbelievable, natural, and supernatural experience where God audibly speaks to him through a burning bush in the desert. Now, I get that that might be a leap, especially for those of you who would put yourself in a biblically skeptical category. But just to be clear, and I don't have time to get into the details of it this morning, the Scriptures present this, Moses presents this, and we accept this as having literally happened. Like a real bush, real fire, and it really not being consumed by the fire. We also have what I would argue is not a normative experience in the life of the Christian, just For note, God speaking audibly to his servant here. God engaging in a literal, audible conversation. Can you imagine how this encounter would have transformed Moses? Because you see, encountering God brings transformation. Not only in a sensational encounter like Moses at the burning bush, But this principle holds true even for us in mundane ways. Encountering God brings transformation. I've had the privilege, as we've been receiving members here recently, to hear people speak a verbal testimony of their encounters with God. To hear people speak about the knowledge of their sin and the knowledge of their need and then their knowledge of the Savior and the way in which God saved them and brought them to himself. As people have been recounting their encounters with God, the evidence of that is transformation. It's not perfect lives, but it's true transformation that changes the trajectory and the arc of a person's life forever. And not just that person, but entire communities. You see, Moses' immersive experience with God in the burning bush in the desert some 3,500 years ago, was not only transformative for him, it was transformative for God's entire community of Israel at the time. But not only for them, for God's community for years to come, even us here today. The fact that Moses had this immersive encounter with God at the burning bush is not lost on us here today. It still has a ripple effect. It still is teaching us about who God is and who we are. And that's really the two main questions that I want us to consider. If the overarching idea from Exodus 3 this morning is that encountering God is transformative, I want us to see that when we encounter God, we learn two things. We learn who He is and we learn who we are. A number of different scholars have entertained 
and grappled with these questions. I've personally benefited from other scholars' works, even other colleagues' works, asking these two fundamental questions from Exodus 3. And so I'd like us to consider these things together as we think about this idea of encountering God brings transformation. And as we think about we encounter God, as we consider who He is and who we are. But before we do that, one other thing for us to consider. All of us are on a journey to figure out who we are. No matter where you're coming from, no matter how spiritual you would consider that journey to be, everybody is looking for themselves. And it's very difficult, actually, to find ourselves. It's difficult to know truth. In fact, our desire for knowledge often leads us to want to know more about other people than we know about ourselves. While I think things like technology and social media bring much blessing, they also bring peril to us. And one of the things they bring to us is we seemingly have an obsessive desire to know about other people. And that incessant desire to know so many things about so many other people, what they believe, how they behave, what they eat, where they vacation, what they look like, what their kids look like, that we are so obsessed with seeking to know everybody else, or so obsessed with seeking to know particular political views or ideologies or the way in which we do life. One of the things that has escaped us in this incessant desire for knowledge is really knowing ourselves. And in fact, in many ways, I think we could argue we're scared of knowing ourselves and potentially even scared of knowing God. Therefore, we obsess about seeking to know other things, like abstract things, or seeking to know other people. Joseph Conrad, the great novelist in his book, Lord Jim, said this, It is my belief that no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. It's his conviction that no man quite understands how artfully we dodge the shadow and the grim knowledge of ourselves. But you see, it's a problem. If we don't really know ourselves, we can't really know God. That's the way John Calvin actually said it on the very first page of his classic work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. In summary, he essentially said, you cannot know God without knowing yourself, nor can you know yourself without knowing God. And so these two questions seem important for us to consider this morning, knowing that when we encounter God, or better yet, God encounters us, we are transformed, and we are transformed by having a better understanding of who He is and having a better understanding of who we are. What do we learn about who God is in Exodus 3? Let's turn our attention to the text. The thing that I want us to look at in the beginning is we learn that God is a God who pursues. God pursues His people. Moses is wondering. Moses is keeping. Moses is shepherding his flock. In the wilderness, and then we see that God comes to him. 
and that God calls him and that God drives Moses to himself. God does this, as we've already mentioned, but let's just say it again, in a pretty dramatic way. God audibly calls to Moses and God manifests himself to Moses in a very physical way. We don't have time to consider this in great detail, but it seems worth noting to me. We've even been saying the last couple of weeks in our confession of faith that God is a spirit, and he indeed is, yet God is also in the realm of the physical. And we could talk about the manifestation of God in the physical reality in our own lives and in creation, and it's great for us to understand that, and we can even see it here, that God chooses to reveal himself through a bush, a bush that's burning, a bush that sits in the desert, and then God speaks. So God pursues, we learn that about God, and we also learn that God reveals. God reveals himself. He reveals himself here literally and figuratively as a consuming fire. And this image of God being synonymous with fire is not exclusive to Exodus 3, but we see this throughout the Scriptures that God himself is synonymous here with fire. And there's something we can all appreciate, whether we are old or young, about being fascinated by fire, right? I don't know how many campers we have out there. I would consider myself and my family people who are campers, happy campers even, if you will. But one of the things that's so fascinating about camping is a fire, It's amazing how people are incessantly drawn to the campfire, putting things in the fire, cooking things on the fire, messing with the fire, getting more wood for the fire. It's all about the fire. And that's true in a fireplace or that's true in a fire pit. There might be a few exceptions out there, but I think we can all bow to the reality that we're fascinated by fire. We're drawn to it. Well, in a literal, but then also very figurative and profound way, Moses too was drawn to because God pursued him in this fire, in this bush, as God was seeking to reveal himself to Moses. And then even more specifically, what we see and what we learn about God in Exodus 3 is that God reveals his name to Moses. Now, there's great mystery even about the revelation of God's name, and there's a myriad amount of scholarship that's given to even these few verses that start to swim in waters that even whale sharks don't go in. Scholars swim in some of these waters, diagnosing and assessing the Hebrew, and I'll save us all from that this morning. But I do want to make a general observation that God reveals himself by revealing his name. And even in our day and time, a name is what allows you to enter into the next phase of relationship, even with another human being, right? When you know someone's name, and they know your name, or when you name someone initially, or even spiritually, that's what baptism is. Baptism, in many ways, is a naming ceremony. Well, Exodus 3, through the burning bush, God is having a naming ceremony. He is naming himself to Moses. He is saying, I am the God of your forefathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am who I am. I am God. I am 
self-sufficient. I am without further explanation. I just am. I am God. He reveals himself and his name. And then he also reveals, and this is another way you get to know who a person is. He reveals his intentions. His intentions are to bring Moses to himself. To build Moses up, to affirm Moses. And we'll talk more about Moses in a minute when we consider who we are. But we're learning more about God as we see his intentions. He reveals his intentions to Moses. And his intentions are simple. Salvation. God's intention is deliverance. God's intention is the rescue of his people. And that tells us something about who God is. And we've seen this already implicitly, but let's just state it explicitly. Not only does God pursue and reveal, but we also see in this passage that God is personal. And this is important for us to remember, and we're going to hold this intention in just a moment, but the Bible presents God as a personal God. A God who has things like a name. A God who engages in conversation. A God who can relate to normal broken people like Abraham, the liar and the idolater. A personal God who can relate to Isaac, arguably as one of my friends said recently, the, most, the head of the most dysfunctional family in the entire scriptures. God is a God who can relate with Jacob, a con artist and another liar, just to begin with. He's personal, and therefore he relates with people like Moses, the murderer. You can't help but to see these things throughout the Old Testament. While they might be a little bit shocking, they ought to be encouraging. Because whether those things that I just named are literally true of you or not, they're definitely true of us in principle. We're broken people. And we need a personal God to personally meet us where we are. In Exodus 3, God does that with Moses. But to juxtapose his personal, his eminence in this passage, we also see God's transcendence. God is not only personal, but God is transcendent. God is meeting Moses in finiteness, but God himself is infinite. God is personal and near, but God is transcendent, and He is other. And this is really encapsulated in what, here in this passage, and arguably only in a couple other passages, this clearly we see potentially the most crowning characteristic of who God is, if we were to think about an attribute. And what we see here is, God is holy. Now, the writer's of the scriptures didn't have things like grammar or different fonts or italics or bold print. And so they had to emphasize truths in different ways. And it's pretty clear that one of the ways they emphasize truths in the scripture was through repetition. And so when you see something in scripture, we ought to pay attention to it. And if we see something in scripture more than once, we really ought to pay attention to it. And so there's various attributes and characteristics throughout the scriptures that we see about who God is. And even if we were, you know, if this was our style, which it's not, we could do a little bit of interaction right now. And we could say, God is revealed as what in scripture? And you could say things. But then if I were to ask you, what do you think the most characteristic thing is of God in scripture? And we were to say, well, 
It's kind of hard to determine. It's not really a fair question, but if we were just to use this grammatical technique of repetition, I wonder, is there anything that's repeated a couple times in Scripture, like in one sentence, like love or, you know, omniscience? And we're like, yeah, there's probably some Scriptures like that. But then what if we were to ask this question, is there any one particular attribute at one specific part, maybe in a particular verse, that is repeated not once, but three times? And then, being a good student of the Word, you would say, yeah, I think so. I I think I'm right in saying that twice in Scripture, in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, there's one characteristic or attribute that's repeated of God three times, and it's the only attribute of God that's repeated three times in the Scripture. And that attribute is holy. God is holy. 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 So much so that the angels fall down and hide their faces before Him and that we will worship Him in glory forever as John writes in Revelation because God is holy, holy, holy. We will definitely not know who God is if we don't know that He is holy, holy, holy. And if we don't know that God is holy, we won't have any clue of who we are. But we'll get to that in a minute. You see, it's important for us to understand this distinct attribute of God. And holiness simply means to be set apart. It means to be pure. It means to be without blemish. It means to live in unapproachable light. It means that for Moses and for us, we need to take heed to what he tells Moses. Did you see this in the text there? In verses 4 and 5, because God is holy, Moses, I need you to do two things and I want to make sure you're listening. Number one, no offense, keep your distance. And number two, take off your shoes because you're walking on holy ground. Once again, can you imagine how transformative this immersive experience was for Moses as he was seeing the one true God unfolded before him from a distance, whatever that distance was, with his shoes off because he was on holy ground. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, essentially asked, answering the question, whatever happened to God's holiness? said this, the only aspect of God's character the world still believes in is His love. His holiness, His sovereignty, His wrath are often rejected as being incompatible with a, quote, loving God. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything that you might find uncomfortable. Well, Can we just concede to some degree this morning that because He's God and because He's holy, it's a little uncomfortable. And wouldn't you want it to be, by the way? I mean, do you really want to worship and give your life to a person or something that's totally understandable and relatable that you can completely figure out that you feel no sense of intimidation and you feel only a sense of comfort with? That doesn't seem worthy of worship. There's got to be this otherness. 
to one who is worthy of worship, it seems, just by common sense. And Moses got that, and therefore he was to keep his distance and to take his shoes off because he's on holy ground. Have you ever been on holy ground? A lot of people think the grounds that will be walked in just a few weeks in April in Augusta, Georgia, is considered holy ground. even heard a quote from Jack Nicholas, the greatest, the other day saying, I still get chills when I drive down Magnolia Lane. Of course, the masters. I've been there. It is amazing. There is this sense where there is an awe. And for a golf lover, my first time there in 2005, chills, maybe even tears, an inclination to take my shoes off. But how much more? I mean, that's silly. How much more? In the desert at Mount Horeb, before a non-consuming fire of a burning bush, stands the leader and the deliverer of God's people at a distance with his shoes off because God is holy, holy, holy. That's who God is. God is one who reveals himself. God is one who pursues. God is personal. And God is holy. And then lastly, we really do see here that God is loving. He cares. He's not so distant. He's not deistic. God has not created the world and then set it in motion and that we live in this distant experience from Him. And we see His love embedded in many ways, but it just seems to hone in maybe on verse 7, which would hearken us to Exodus 2, verses 23 through 24. And what verse 7 tells us, and what Exodus 2, 23 through 25 tells us, simply is this, God loves us. And God cares for us. Why? Because as God's people were oppressed and enslaved and abused and betrayed, God saw them. And God heard them. And God was sympathetic to them. Because He cared for them and He loved them. Now let's consider a little more briefly and lastly this question, who are we? That's who God is. Who are we? And we take this question because Moses asked this question. And there's a lot of different thought why Moses asked this question. Is Moses asking this question out of humility? Probably. Is Moses asking this question out of confusion? Surely. Is Moses asking this question out of insecurity? Absolutely. See, as Moses starts to see more clearly who God is, just like Calvin himself said, he starts to see more clearly who he is. And what we see about Moses and what we see about us is this, that we and he is insecure. So like, get in line. Join the club. And the more self-awareness we have, if we continue to not dodge you know, the grim shadows of self-knowledge, we can actually just embrace the fact, I'm insecure. I make fun of people and I'm really sarcastic because I'm insecure. Moses reveals his insecurity just by his question of, who am I? What else we see about Moses and what we see about ourselves is that not only are we insecure, but we're needy. 
Moses was in need of deliverance. Why? Because he was a shepherd on the run as a murderer. He didn't want to show his face in public. He and we are needy. I do think that there is genuine humility in Moses' interaction. So he is humble. I think we learn that. Another thing we learn, and we'll get to explore this in more detail in the weeks to come, even starting next week. Moses clearly sees himself, and once again, join the club here, as inadequate and insufficient. Do you ever feel like that? I'm not asking if you ever admit if you feel like that. I'm asking if you ever feel inadequate and insufficient. And I would simply say this lovingly. If you never feel inadequate and insufficient, then you don't know God. Because there's nothing like coming face to face with a holy God that will make us feel inadequate and insufficient. And I don't know if you can follow the line of logic here with Moses and God, but Moses is like, who am I? I can't do this. God does not move into like Dr. Phil mode. He does not become Oprah and start to preach and fill him up with like positivity and self-talk. Essentially what God tells Moses is, you're right. You're insufficient. You're inadequate. You can't cut it. But here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to. It's not about you. It's about me. It's not about your adequacy or inadequacy. It's about mine. It's not about your sufficiency. It's about my sufficiency. And you're actually perfect for who I want because you're a broken person. And guess what? I only use broken people. And he's going to send a very broken person into a very broken, convoluted mission, but that will end in deliverance and salvation of his people. Moses is confused, so are we. Moses is needy, so are we. Moses is insufficient and inadequate, and so are we. And the sooner we can accept that, the sooner we can find hope and transformation in the gospel, the last thing we see about Moses and the last thing that we see about ourselves, and I'll close with this, is that Moses is driven and Moses is called. In the midst of all these things that are true about him, it ends with this idea of Moses on mission. Moses is driven to God. That's something that God is up to. God is driving people to himself. That's what I got to hear in words of testimony Once again, through people joining the church, people are speaking of being driven, not driving. They are driven to God. And then God calls them into mission. Do you know God? Do you know yourself? Have you encountered Him in a way that brings transformation? Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through this narrative. We thank you for people like Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who sound lofty to us only because we don't know them. They're really just like us. Liars, murderers, con artists, just broken people to not be too dramatic about it. And we're thankful that you meet us in in our brokenness. We're thankful that you reveal yourself to us, that you pursue us, that you show us yourself so we can know ourselves and ultimately that you show us Christ, in whom our hope and salvation is in. Thank you that he is everything that Moses was not. 
And I pray that you would help us to know him or trust him for the first time or more deeply. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.